please join us for episode three of I Dream of Genie. Guess what happened on the way to the moon? Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered am I. Welcome to Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered our podcast about magical sitcoms of the 1960s. I'm Frank. And I'm Molly. And you're joining us for the third episode of I Dream of Genie. Guess what happened on the way to the moon. But before we get started, we're going to give you a brief synopsis. Astronaut Tony Nelson and his best friend, Roger Healy, are given a survival mission in the brutal desert of Skull Flats. Tony forbids Jeannie from accompanying them, but she stows along in her master's water canteen. After being planted in the middle of the desert, Tony and Roger head off in opposite directions. Once Jeannie makes her presence known, Tony tries to send her back, but she refuses. In addition to luxuriously catering Tony's survival test, Jeannie is briefly glimpsed by Roger, who thinks that he is cracking up. After the mission's completion, Dr. Bellows marvels at Tony gaining five pounds while poor Roger loses 12. All right. Excellent. So just a little bit of overview. The last episode that we reviewed was just a nightmare of jumbled plots, and then this one actually is tighter than that. I'm not saying it's better. It's just tighter. But not funnier. No, (laughs) no. I, I didn't even know we were going for funny, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) well let's just dig into it then shall we yeah yeah where is that razor razor just doesn't simply get up and walk away by itself the show opens with tony with shaving cream on his face if you recall yes he's wandering through the house looking for his razor and he finds that genie has hidden the photograph of him and his fiance it's not his fiance though it's some other woman oh is it well i think it's supposed to stand in for the fiance but since she doesn't have a speaking role in this episode maybe they didn't need to pay her so they just got a kind of a body double it's definitely not the same actress oh my goodness wow that is crazy Good morning, Master Darling. How may I serve you? Well, first of all, you can stop calling me Master Darling. And secondly, uh, you can stop being such a neatener. What means this word, neatener? <laughs> well, it's like when you throw out my newspaper before I've read it, and, uh, and you put her in the drawer, and now my razor is missing. Oh, that. I got rid of it. She really wants him to have a beard. In the land from which I came, it is the fashion for all masters to wear beards. (laughs) Well, Jeannie, in this country, the only people who wear beards are folk singers and beatniks. He is a square from Squaresville. Not a hipster. Nope. My handsome master would look like a king with a warrior's beard. Behold. Beautiful. Now you look a proper master. And the beard she puts on him, holy crap. Oh, yeah, it's a Hellenian beard <laughs> that would go well with a toga and sandals. No, that must be Dr. Pillows. No, get me out of this, quick. Well, well thanks. 
And then when she zaps him back, there's still some shaving cream at his temples. Like, I don't get the logic of that, but. Oh, thanks for the shave. <laughs> so in this episode, I think we're seeing a big shift in Jeannie in a couple of ways. When Tony leaves with Dr. Bellows, she takes these long strides staring at her feet and kicks at the door in frustration as Tony has refused her offer to beard him up. It's very childish and very innocent. And if you notice in this episode as well, they have covered up her midriff. They've carefully placed her scarf so, and you, you were very correct when you said it is very much like a sari, because it falls this way and that, but in this episode, it is deliberately covering up her midsection. I feel that Sidney Sheldon received a nervous call from a studio executive or a television network censor. That might be. That's pretty interesting. And this entire episode really focuses more on Jeannie being more innocent than anything else. Childlike. Guileless. That's it, gentlemen. We've looked at so many films of the moon's surface. When we finally land there, it'll seem like homecoming. That's why this survival mission you're embarking on tomorrow is of such vital importance. When you get back, we'll have a much better idea of man's ability to survive a week under really rugged conditions. So the next thing that happens is that they're at NASA and they're deciding just the most horrible place that they could send Tony and Roger in order to recreate the moon, which, you know, now seems a little silly because we know that the moon is nothing like the desert. For robotic lunar probes, it might have made sense. For example, there's a canyon in northern Chile called Canyon of the Moon that they use for a lot of the Mars rover testing. But for survival training for astronauts, no, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to people walking for seven days uh, in the middle of... Well, they mentioned a couple of places. Furnace Canyon, Nevada, which is too much of a cakewalk. So the assignment is changed to Skull Flats, Utah. I imagine that it's probably close to Salt Lake City. They could visit Tony's mom, his Mormon mom. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Theoretically, men of your age and superlative physical condition should be able to uh, cover the 75 miles from the drop zone to our evacuation strip, if nothing goes wrong. You figure something will? Lots of things. Well, that's the survival game for you. We're sending you down with one quart of water per man, period. You mean, you mean no food? Only what you are able to catch, kill, or scrape off the underside of rocks. Because that's exactly the kind of options they'll have on the moon. This is a do-it-yourself survival mission, and I'm leaving you right here. And just to make certain you don't interfere, (gasps) back in the bottle you go. Oh, please, Master. Over 2,000 years I've spent in that accursed bottle. Well, then one more week can't make that much difference. Now be a good genie and back in the bottle. You are the most difficult master I've ever served. (laughs) How many masters has she had? That's occurred to me as well. And how many of those relationships were sexual? Right, right. (laughs) Roger comes in saying that all five of his girlfriends are weeping at the prospect of his week-long departure. And their names are Annabelle, Louise, Margie, Dottie, and Faye. Wow. It's strange. Uh, I actually remember Roger Healy being one of my favorite parts of the show. I remember him as being sort of a funny Barney Rubble type character. But in these first four episodes that we're watching with him, he's a real horn dog. Yeah. Which plays kind of against his casting because the actor Bill Daly, who is funny, honestly, he's got good comic timing, I think, better than the people around him doesn't really have any sexual charisma. He's got the sexual charisma of a middle-aged dad. Wasn't he in The Bob Newhart Show? He was great on The Bob Newhart Show. 
I'll get it. Hi, Bob. Hi, Howard. Great party. Thank you, Arden. I really appreciate your coming over and telling me that. Oh, uh, I'm sorry I can't come in, but uh, Wendy and I are still celebrating your birthday in my apartment. Oh. Listen, uh, you uh, left your pajamas at the party. I thought you uh, might need them tonight. I don't think I will, Howard. He played Bob Newhart's neighbor across the hallway, who is always barging into Bob and Suzanne Plachette's home to be fed meals to leave his child whenever he had custody of his child because he was a divorcee. He was sort of like an absent-minded man-child. He was the first Kramer, basically. He was a pilot. He was, yeah, he was a navigator. Oh, a navigator, of course, not the pilot, the navigator. But by the end of the series, he got promoted to co-pilot. But uh, yeah, he was never the pilot. He was kind of a doofus. Haven't all navigators been replaced by machines? I, I don't know. Have all drummers been replaced by machines? Have you ever been on a plane where they say... Hello from the pilot, and the navigator's going to wave to you from the back. You know, like, there's no navigator. <laughs> the last time I remember that being announced was in Airplane the Movie. Gentlemen, I'd like you to meet your captain. Captain, over. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. Captain, your navigator, Mr. Unger, and your first officer, Mr. Dunn. Unger? Over. Over. Done. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. This is my favorite part of this whole episode. What's that? Roger is wearing synthetic boots. Oh, yeah. He's wearing synthetic <laughs> fiberglass boots. Any final order, sir? No, just stay alive and cover as much ground as possible. All right, let's get cracking. Yeah, I'm anxious to try these new synthetic boots, see how they work. All right, you go ahead. I'm going to stick with the old-fashioned guy. And what is so funny about this is that in the last episode where they made no effort to tie anything together at all, like loose ends abound, and they do in this episode too, but they set up this synthetic boot joke early, <laughs> right? Yes. So Tony's going to eat some boot <laughs> and Roger's not going to have a boot that's edible. And so that's like a whole part of the plot line that gets started like right at the beginning. Uh. We're going to do this right. Sidney Sheldon planting those seeds from which great oaks of comedy grow. <laughs> Can you imagine being in a desert in whatever synthetic boots were at that time? Because, oh my God, his feet just must be roasting in terrible shape. <laughs> yes. Oh, just in a pool of sweat, just sliding around in the bottom of those boots. Boy, that survival business is pretty thirsty work, huh? I'll drink to that. Well, here's to you. <laughs> oh no, what? Uh, oh no, I don't think I'll drink yet. Uh, Try and test the old endurance, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Tony has opened his canteen. Indeed. And figures out that Jeannie's in there somehow. She's in there giggling. And so then he tries to split up from Roger, sends him away. Jeannie makes a vodka martini spring erupt from a boulder, which is very James Bond. Mmm. It's a vodka martini. Is that not my master's favorite potion? Yes, at cocktail time, but this is life or death. Just one quart plain, please. Plain water. 
Remember, Bond was already in print since 1952. There have already been two James Bond movies by the time this show came out, Dr. No and From Russia With Love. So the entire idea of James Bond and the vodka martini were very much at the forefront of pop culture. Is it also a regionalism? Mm, Possibly. You know, so that a vodka martini would be more of a South or a Florida thing and a gin martini would be more old New York. Gin martini is definitely more traditional, more old school, more classic. I won't say the word classy because classy people don't use the word classy, but more elegant to be sure. Vodka martini is more fashionable and hip and I find them tasteless and like drinking rubbing alcohol. Yeah, I really don't care for vodka martinis. Nope. I like gin. Me too. It's an acquired taste. I mean... Took me a long time. I don't think people come out of the womb liking gin. Nope. Something you grow into. Absolutely. So Jeannie tries to save Tony, who's about to fall off a cliff, and then he says, let me go, and then he falls. Right. And of course, he falls and sprains his ankle. So then the next scene is Jeannie outside of a harem tent. Preparing some baktu malani, an ancient Persian remedy. The ancient Persian remedy chicken soup. It's hot chicken soup. And uh, Tony is horrified to discover that as he's pushing away a spoonful, he's already had three bowls. So his experiment of survivalism is already ruined. Yes, he's already, already cheated. The characterization of Persian stuff, like behind Tony's head, there's an urn that looks to me like it could be more Egyptian. I don't know. And then there's pink feathers in it. and It's a melange. You know, I've been just shopping for oriental rugs, uh-huh. which are ridiculously expensive, by the way. And now I'm drooling over the rug in there because I wonder if it's like a, the real deal, like a real you know, Persian rug. Yeah, and I bet back then they were cheap. In the Hollywood backlot of the set, I mean, like, think of all the props they used for all those Thief of Baghdad films and Sinbad and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. There's a long tradition of Arabian Nights films. Can I just mention that nobody's fixed the rickrack on Jeannie's hat? Since you mentioned that, I have been crazily focused on her hat. (laughs) Maybe the producer's daughter came in and sewed the rickrack on, and they all said, great, honey, it's so beautiful, she'll wear it forever, or whatever. (laughs) Tony makes Jeannie get rid of the tent and everything, and then there's this bobcat. And I'm just curious if that animal really lives in Skull Valley. What sort of large predators are out in Skull Valley? I would think more snakes, wouldn't you? I thought it was a California mountain lion. Oh, maybe so. I don't know my cats. Neither do I. And since all of this is filmed within the confines of Hollywood and Burbank, to me it reminds me of every time they filmed outdoors for a Star Trek, the original series episode. So the cat is about to jump on him and then Jeannie appears as a aberration or like, what is that? She's just like... She looks like she's translating the episode for the deaf. Weird oval cameo image of Jeannie appears in the corner of the screen in a really hasty optics special effect, and she turns the lion or bobcat into a white rabbit. Cut to a commercial, and the rabbit's gone. Yeah, they're both starving. Why didn't they just hang on to it? Yeah, they're both complaining about no breakfast, but they didn't eat the rabbit. It's too cute. 
Before the cat attack, we should mention that Roger thinks that he's seeing a mirage because he actually catches sight of the Arabian tent and of Genie, and he calls Tony on his mammoth walkie-talkie. Oh, those walkie-talkies are amazing. They're the size of like a two-by-four. Yeah, it's like a huge gizmo. So they're out in the wilderness. They're carrying their water and these big walkie-talkies, and they really don't seem to have any other gear or survival stuff at all. Nope. So just a big box and like what would amount to like a large bottled water you could pick up at the gas station today. Again, I have no idea what this is going to prove. (laughs) I don't know what this survival test is meant to accomplish. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm sure they do them. Uh, I think they do them to Marines and to special elite Navy forces. I'm sure they do all kinds of survival testing, but for these NASA astronauts, I'm not, I don't see what they're meant to do. No, it's not really very practical. And of course, survival stuff has become in our modern day, like a huge sport, like everybody, every middle class man and some women are involved in some kind of, you know, marathon running or triathlete and everybody kind of wears the badge of honor of whatever endurance test that they engage in as heroic leisure. I took great joy in participating in a Tough mutter a few years ago. Um, it was recreational anxiety <laughs> and, <laughs> and self-torture, <laughs> being electrocuted, being dunked in ice water. It was a lot of fun. What do you think that's about? Why did I do it? I I think it was peer pressure. I I can't remember what it was. I'm a big fan of civilization, and I think that civilization should have gentle pursuits, but there is a craving for the rough life. Yeah, and they're, they're controlled. The other thing that seems sort of related to me that drives me crazy is the book about the heroic rescue of some idiot that chose <laughs> to do something stupid, and then they were, you know, eating their shoes or whatever, like Tony is here. Gnawing off their own leg. Yeah, we're supposed to feel really bad for him and it's like well what the what were you out there in the first place for it's like you didn't need to do that what was that book they made a movie out of it with reese witherspoon uh wild wild i hated that book (laughs) i hated it i tried to read it and it's like she's sort of having a rough day and she decides i need to go hike the whatever trail and so she just goes to a outfitter store and grabs a few provisions and then just heads out and she starts getting blisters and she's so miserable and it's like well serves you right (laughs) just get off the trail and go reinstate your credit card and think about how you should plan your life because that is stupid. I need to do something real. And by real, I mean something cathartic because somehow every part of my life has become so routine that that seems less real to me than this completely fake challenge that I've unnecessarily pushed myself into. And I've never seen Wild, but I felt that same level of exasperation when I think I saw a trailer several years ago for the latest Mount Everest movie. And I can't remember if it was a dramatization or a documentary, but the bereaved wife of a lost climber was saying he needed to go on to that mountain to live. It's like, no, he didn't. Uh, No, he did not. I'm a doctor, Frank, (laughs) and I know that that was not necessary. (laughs) But we have strange destructive compulsions, and uh, we also have a tendency to really enjoy spinning all of our faults as our biggest positive attributes. If my master is hungry, I could easily spread a six-course... Of course I'm hungry, but you know the rules. What did you say? (laughs) I said I was hungry. (laughs) Mm. Tony, 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 what are you doing? 
Uh, you're not going to believe this, Roger, but I got so hungry I took a, took a bite out of my walkie-talkie. Oh, God. hang on, will you? Look, I got some cactus here that looks beautiful. I'll try to get the needles off and bring you some, okay? Well, if the meat is not pleasing to you, I can No, it's it. wonderful, but I can't gorge myself on roast lamb while my buddy's out eating needles. Tony just took a bite out of his walkie-talkie. Because and... Jeannie turned it into a leg of lamb briefly. Yeah, I like the leg of lamb. I mean, that seems authentic, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely. It's definitely bringing Persia to the American Mormon desert. <laughs> Strangely, when Jeannie changes it back into a walkie-talkie, it has a bite taken out of it, and seemingly Tony has difficulty swallowing it because it's also turned into a microphone in his gullet. Hey, you know something? I must be cracking up. I could swear I smell roast lamb. Huh? <laughs> oh, oh, that. Yeah, well, I... I got so hungry, I cooked my shoe and I ate it. Roast shoe? How did it taste? A lot like roast lamb. <laughs> oh, boy, no matter how hungry I get, I can never eat these fiberglass goodies. <sighs> Listen, Raj, with this bum ankle, I'll never be able to keep up with you. You better, you better go it on your own. I'll leave you out in this wilderness? Forget it. Listen, the faster you get back to civilization, the faster you'll be able to send help back for me. I am not leaving you Roger, the mission comes first. All right. I'll come back and pick you up myself. Oh, and, and look, don't burn yourself out. Slow and easy does it. Jeannie goes through a real arc with regards to Roger in this episode, though she doesn't meet him. She goes from offering to Tony to turn Roger into a pillar of salt. Biblical reference. Very biblical. To recognizing Roger's goodness and not wanting him to suffer. Your friend is a good man. Yeah, none better. It will be hot out there. If you like, I could make a cooling shower of rain for him. I'd like to put him in an air-conditioned car. Now, stop that. He's got to do this on his own, otherwise the whole mission is for nothing. You understand? No. But if you want your best friend to suffer... <laughs> Yeah, she comes to love Roger. Yes, and he definitely falls romantically and lustfully in love with her. Yeah, he seems like a better catch than Tony, to be honest. Uh, it seems that way for now, but when we eventually revisit I Dream of Jeannie, Roger goes through a very villainous arc, strangely, oh. where he steals her bottle and becomes her new master and turns into a big jerk. Uh, he goes mad with power. Uh, Tony, uh... I was uh, just thinking you won't be doing much walking. Could you let me have your other shoe? My other shoe? Yeah, it's be kind of change of diet, and it did smell like roast lamb. And it's... Oh, okay, but uh, promise me you won't eat it unless there's absolutely nothing else around. And don't overcook it. So Roger just took a bite of Tony's shoe. What is Tony wearing on his feet at this point? Unclear. Both his shoes have been cooked. Yeah, I see he's in socks. Black socks. Jeannie, it's against my principles, but you better get us out of here. I won't have Roger risking his life coming back for me. Give me some fast transportation, fast. Well, as you say, Master. This is not exactly what I had in mind. It is the only way to travel. <laughs> When Jeannie creates one camel for she and Tony to ride to the rendezvous point, she says it's the only way to travel, which is kind of a play on a classic old Western Airlines advertisement, which predated this show. Western Airlines, the only way to fly. The other thing is that Jeannie's driving the camel and Tony's riding on the back. I don't think there are many other situations where they put Jeannie in charge that way. The masculine role would be to be in the front. It's very usually very traditional on the gender stuff here. 
And poor Roger is out there in the desert still wearing those plastic boots. (laughs) (laughs) He's all all sweaty and wet. And Roger is not in great shape. This is becoming even more apparent when he's wearing the jumpsuit, which is a fairly figure-flattering, concealing garment. But it's clear that he's got a paunch. He's an older fellow. He doesn't look like he exercises much. No, they are not super buff in this show. No. The young guys. Although Tony's pretty... He's felt. He beats Roger, for Oh, he sure. absolutely does, yeah. yes. All of the people in these older shows, to me, look older than they are. That's a really general statement, but it seems to me that people aged faster. Honestly, it was a devotion to tanning and sun culture in California from that time. Cigarettes. I bet they all smoked. Uh, Whenever they do some rare close-ups on people's faces, I'm astounded to see some of the lines. That looks like sun damage to me around actors' eyes. For Barbara Eden, for Larry Hagman... As we're getting into the color seasons of Bewitched, round the eyes of Elizabeth Montgomery and Dick York. Well, Dick York always looked like an old man. Yeah, he... He he, he looked weirdly... Yes. ...aged compared to her right from the start. Yep. Yeah. Just too much sun. Too much sun. I think there was this idea that a tan made you look young and healthy, and they were just aging themselves. Doris Day had that as well. Amazing. Unbelievable. Couldn't the scale be wrong, sir? No, Captain. Let's face it. You not only survived, you gained five pounds. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. And one ounce. But that's not the worst of How am I going to explain your condition? Why, you're in perfect health. Uh, what about my elbow? Uh, yes. What about that elbow? Well, it hurts. Isn't that something? I know it hurts, and I know why it hurts. There's only one thing that could be. What? Gout. They make it to the end, and I like that Jeannie gets furious at Dr. Bellows when he diagnoses Tony with gout. (laughs) He describes the food that she's fed to Tony on the sly as being too rich. Oh, my God. That's why she's angry at Dr. Bellows. I'm always happy with Dr. Bellows. Uh, He does some uh, mental somersaults at the very end to write off Tony's entire uh, confession. Very interesting. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, Doc, you don't believe him, do you? Of course not. But the important thing is that he believes it. A remarkable manifestation of mind over matter. You see, Captain Nelson was so convinced the food was there, he not only put on weight, he got the gout. And as for your camel, he got the saddle sore. <laughs> then you don't think I'm crazy, sir. You're not going to kick me out of the space program. Well, hardly. We need men like you, men of imagination and determination, if we're to survive on the moon. Thank you, sir. You'll never regret this. I'm recommending you for the most difficult mission we have yet devised, Operation Extinction. It doesn't make a lot of sense as some sort of physical manifestation of a psychological condition, but he is convinced enough that he volunteers Tony for something called Operation Extinction, which sounds like uh, an even more dire survival test after this. I thought from the way this episode ended that we were headed into a sequel (laughs) because, you know, he's got this new mission that he's going to go on and then it shows him heading out and tricking Jeannie into getting into her bottle. Yep. And to me, that's like an opener for the next episode. Uh, Yes. At the very end of the episode, Tony tells Jeannie that he does want her to come along on his next survival mission that he's packing up for and he tricks her this time successfully into locking her up in her bottle and the last we see of her is being shaken around in her bottle by tony then i'm really going with you 
I wouldn't dream of tackling Operation Extinction without you. Oh, I am so pleased. <laughs> you will love the desert of Saudi Arabia. I know a pool there. Oh, I bet you do. All right. In your box. But... In! Uh... I'm sorry, Jeannie. I know this is a dirty trick and I hate myself, but I'm going to accomplish this mission on my own. With nothing going for me. Oh, boy. Let's maybe take a quick moment to talk about the sense of humor that's at work here for Jeannie, for Sidney Sheldon. We mentioned before that this is a very cartoony show, and I think this is a kind of humor that they're going for is a quick belly laugh. Wacky images, silly situations that lead to the fastest belly laugh, and then the situation is forgotten, and we've moved on to the next thing. Guys eating shoes. Guys eating shoes. It's not humor that's meant to be mulled over or examined or stands up to any sort of scrutiny. It's definitely not humor that works on either one of us. Well, not now, but I wonder if it did when I was in third grade or whenever it came out. You know, when I was a little kid, seeing a man eat a shoe. I wonder if I would have thought that was funny. I don't think it's funny now when I'm years old, but... I'll be cutting out your age. (laughs) Isn't this shoe thing like a starvation thing? There's some mythology around eating a shoe when you're starving, isn't there? This isn't the first place this has come up. It sounds like hobo soup. Yeah, it's like an old meme about when you're starving that you can... Somehow cooking the leather on your shoe. Dust Bowl or Depression Era railway tramps eating shoelace spaghetti. <laughs> I don't know if any of this is real, but it's it sounds like a pop culture urban legend. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> but no, you're, you're right about they go for the belly laugh. I just don't have a lot of patience for it. I feel like, you know, the only reason that we're possibly diving as deeply into the issues that we are is because we're not laughing. You know, on Bewitched, I laugh at the funny stuff, but I also want to talk about what it means when Samantha does this or when Darren does that and, you know, how Jackie Kennedy she is and what she's... So I think that might just be the nature of the way I look at things, and especially when we're when we're retroactively kind of picking this apart. Agreed, agreed. So a lot, a lot of cultural stuff there to mind to think about. Wow, what? Can you imagine this show playing now? Like, nope. If they put it on prime time, oh my god, it would. There's so many things that have become serious faux pas. It would just not fly. On the other hand, we do horrible sexist things on prime time that people love, like The Bachelor. I've never seen it. I'm sure there's Bachelor fans that might listen to this, and a lot of people that I know and I like, they like The Bachelor, but it's people acting crazy, and it's straight out of genie, really. I mean, a lot of sexy women in uh, negligee-like clothing trying to woo a single man. Then they reverse it, and they have The Bachelorette and the single men, but it's all very sexual, and the real feminist probably has a hard time stomaching The Bachelor. 
I think that Genie is one of those shows that they have tried again and again to bring back, to reinvigorate and create either a new television series or a film version, and it never gets past a pre-production phase. I can't help but think that some of the examinations that you and I have done have to be things that are going through the minds of worried executives and writers as they're looking at this material. There is no outrage online about how culturally insensitive or sexist Genie is. Not really. Very, very little of it. Right now, it exists in some sort of very safe, untouchable place, possibly because it's left reruns entirely, where it used to be more visible on Nick at Night or on MeTV. Access to it has vanished, so it just exists in people's memory more than anything else trying to come up with a a contemporary version of it, I think feels impossible considering the fact that we have to be people of conscience right now and that a lot of what you could get away with in 1965, you just simply can't get away with right now. So I think I hear the music. Must be time for us to go. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you join us again next week for the last episode of I Dream of Genie before we resume our exploration of Bewitched. I swear to God, it's the last. <laughs> Depending on what sort of feedback we have from our loyal listeners. Oh, what if they want us to do this like forever? <laughs> well, continuously going back and forth between Bewitched and Genie? <laughs> no, what if they say, screw Bewitched, let's just have them do <laughs> Genie over and over again? We're not your performing monkeys. <laughs> we hope that you also listen to other shows in the Piwacket Podcast Network, including The Brothers Grimmer, where my older brother Bert and I review and analyze recent horror movies. And A Breed Apart with Dr. Kate and Steven. Well, until next time. Until next time. Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network. Our opening song is sung by Melissa Arning. A special thanks to Melissa for letting us use it. Gentlemen, let's get to work. Under, didn't you serve under over in the Air Force? Uh, not directly. Technically, Dunn was under over and I was under Dunn. Yep. So, Dunn, you were under, over, and over, under. Yep. Uh, that's right. Dunn was over, under, and I was over, done. So, you see, both Dunn and I were under, over, even though I was under, done. Dunn was over, under, and I was over, done.